0: Hey, creep, I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant, it may not end the way you want it to, but this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is, shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're
1: listening On March 2nd, 1997 in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, while driving along a rural, sparsely populated road, an elderly man and wife saw a horrifying sight, one that would stick with them for as long as they lived, and one that would put little Port Coquitlam, Vancouver, and Canada in the limelight for all the wrong reasons. She stood there bloodied and battered, The woman was badly injured on the road waving her arms frantically for help while a handcuff dangled from one of her torn up wrists. The woman known as Wendy Lynn Eistetter was barely conscious, being driven by the sole instinct to survive, and a rush of endorphins and adrenaline as her body and mind fought to stay alive. Wendy had been stabbed viciously, tearing open her stomach to the point of partial disembowelment. As she reached the hospital, doctors rushed to save her life, and thankfully they did so. Because without her statement, her recounting of events, we still might not be aware of one of Canada's most vicious serial killers. Wendy was a sex worker who lived and worked in an area of Vancouver's notorious downtown East Side called the Low Track. It's hard to imagine what exactly the downtown east side is for those who haven't seen it firsthand. To put it bluntly, it's a downtrodden area unlike anything you've probably ever seen before. It is the highest rate of addiction in Canada and it has the highest density of HIV positive people. So if the downtown east side is essentially hell on earth, then the low track would be its inner circle. It's the poorest postal code in Canada and where the mentally ill discarded from society, the drug-addicted and chronically homeless live. Wendy Eyestetter, who had been engaging in sex work on the low track, had been approached by a man known in the area as Willie. This John was the epitome of filth. He smelt to manure, his hair was oily, and his skin was home to pocked scabs and scaly skin. Despite all of that, Wendy agreed to go with him in exchange for alcohol and drugs. She opened the passenger door to his truck and hopped in, and together the two drove 35 minutes to Willie's pig farm, located in Port Coquitlam. After arriving back at the farm, Willie and Wendy had sex. After a while, the two had thrown their clothes back on, I presume, and Wendy asked Willie if she could use the phone to call her boyfriend. Wendy gripped the phone in her hand and began dialing her boyfriend's number, but Willie had different plans. From behind, Willie bound her with a pair of handcuffs. Or he tried to. He successfully enclosed the first wrist, but as Wendy realized what was happening, she fought back fiercely and Willie wasn't quite able to hold her still long enough in order to get the other cuff closed. Whether feeling the bloodlust boil in the heat of conflict or through sheer panic, Willie grabbed a butcher's knife and came at her. To credit Wendy's fighting spirit, she wrestled the knife away from him and, grabbing hold of it herself, successfully slashed at his throat. As Willie, the would-be captor, bled, Wendy watched him lose consciousness. And it was then she ran for her life and flagged down the elderly couple. They brought her to the hospital, which brought her to speaking with the cops. So, who was this Willie? police wondered, and they wouldn't have to wait as long or go nearly as far to find out as they expected. Where does one go when their throat is slashed? To a hospital, perhaps? Well, that's exactly where Willie went, otherwise known as Robert Pickton. Robert, who had had his throat slashed, had mustered the strength to drag himself out of his own pool of blood and drive himself to the hospital to be attended to. And, with him... In his pocket, found by an orderly, was a key. The key that fit the handcuffs dangling from Wendy's wrist. After that, it didn't take police long to charge Robert Picton, otherwise known as Willie, with attempted murder, aggravated assault, and unlawful confinement. Unlike the charges against Robert, which came fast and furious, Wendy Eistetter's injuries took time to heal. They were deep and severe. Robert had done immense damage to her body, but more than that, he had done irreversible trauma to her mind, and unsurprisingly, Wendy was deeply afraid of Willie, which, when asked by police, resulted in her refusing to testify against Robert. The police, of course, had the testimony of the couple who had found Wendy and driven her to the hospital, as well as the medical staff's testimony, as well as the evidence of the key to the handcuffs which had been in Robert's pocket. But despite all those fingers pointing directly at Robert, they still needed her testimony. But sadly, she wouldn't give it while absolutely sober and in hospital. They had received her statement on the night of the event, of course. But sadly, they saw her as a sex worker who had been deeply addicted to drugs for a number of years. And that statement, which had been taken after an astounding amount of blood loss coupled with the fact that she had been doing drugs as well as drinking, both before and after selling sex to Robert. Well, that was going to be a little hard to sell to a jury, or that's how they saw it at least. With those reasons cited, the prosecution tragically dropped the charges against Robert. This wasn't the first time that claims made by sex workers had been dismissed. 21. That's the number of women that had gone missing on the downtown east side in the two years previous to the attack on Wendy. But the Vancouver Police Department largely dismissed these disappearances or missing women as merely a byproduct of their lifestyle. No one thought or believed there was a killer on the loose. As far as the VPD was concerned, if a woman went missing, there was always an explanation... If they were a sex worker, they moved corners or got out. If they were homeless, then they had found greener pastures or died from exposure. And if they were addicts, then their addiction had claimed them or they had gone to rehab or moved to where drugs were more readily available. 21 Missing Women The Attack on Wendy Her testimony, the testimony of an elderly couple in a car, Robert Pickton soliciting sex and supplying drugs to Wendy. One would think that with all these scattered pieces of information, or merely the attack on Wendy reliable testimony or not, would have warranted an investigation, or perhaps a search warrant, but no such warrant was ever requested, and one could hardly call the follow-up a credible investigation. As I said before, Robert was dirty, soaked through to the bone filthy. In fact, the man, and I do not exaggerate, had a fear of showering. But despite his odor and filth, and the muddy, manure-stained clothes, Robert was a popular man within the community. Robert and his brother David had opened up a sort of non-profit event space on the farm, which they called Piggy's Palace. The event space slash bar slash social hall, despite its grimy surroundings, was kind of popular in the community. It was almost like a sanctioned house party, where anyone could just let down their hair, and of course Robert was always the accommodating host to such events. City council members, policemen, bikers, gang members, regular folks, and local business owners not all of them, but plenty of those people in the community enjoyed more than a few nights at Piggy's Palace. As far as anyone was really concerned, sure, Robert was quiet and weird as hell, but generally a well natured fellow who'd been born into a rough family and a rough upbringing. No one was suspicious of Robert. Robert was a hog farmer. A third-generation hog farmer, in fact, and he was a great host who held raunchy parties at Piggy's Palace, often even roasting a few pigs for his guests to gorge themselves on as they enjoyed their night. When his parents died in 1978, Robert, as well as his two siblings, brother David and sister Linda, inherited the farm. Linda wanted absolutely nothing to do with what she considered to be a hellhole and sold her share to David and Robert. And the two brothers later sold a portion of their land to a developer, which filled their bank accounts to bursting. It was that money that they had used to convert and lightly renovate one of the barns on the property into what would be known as Piggy's Palace Good Times Society. Whether Piggy's was hosting a 10-year high school reunion or a Hell's Angels drug-fueled sex party, Robert would always have pork for sale. And the byproduct of that pork, which he had sold either at the parties or to butchers, he would take to a rendering plant in Vancouver, where the fat would be turned into soaps and lipsticks. It was after he'd delivered his load of pork byproducts that he'd visit the low track where he'd pick up a girl to keep him company for the evening. Even on the low track, where basically anyone coming and going with any sort of recognition by those working the street corners is generally a seedy individual. Even there, Robert was regarded as a nice, well-being man. But as the years passed, locals began to notice that not all the girls that left with Willie came back. Those suspicions and observations were taken to police, of course. And those suspicions were largely ignored by police as well. Maybe he was helping them out, giving them work or getting them clean. Or maybe they just moved on. But not everyone thought of Robert as just a simple, quiet hog farmer. Meet Bill Biscox, a laborer who worked at a salvage yard the Picton brothers owned. Bill would have to go to the hog farm to pick up his checks, and every time he did so, the same thought would run through his mind. The farm was creepy, it was unsettling, its contents were largely hidden from the road and it was a world unto itself. In 1998, after hearing about Robert attacking Wendy, and, again in 1999, Bill Hiscox went to police with his suspicions. He knew there was a string of missing women, and he knew Robert was a regular on the low track. He expressed to police how he'd heard that there were the belongings of missing women in Robert's trailer, and how Robert would joke around telling acquaintances and friends that his meat grinder was perfect for getting rid of bodies if they ever needed him to do so. But the most horrifying suspicion of Bill's was that Robert might be serving human to his guests at Piggy's Palace. Police did take his statement, promising to carry through with an investigation into the matter, and they did question Robert. And, of course, he denied everything. And then police asked for permission to search his property, which Robert gave. But police, now satisfied that they could see into the soul of a man, deemed him innocent and never conducted that search. And then things rested, and Robert continued to visit the low track and life returned to normal. Sometime after Bill Hiscox had gone with his suspicions to police... Another individual came forward with concerning information about Robert. The man told police that Lynn Ellingson, his sister, had been staying with Robert, living with him for a time, but that her live in arrangement had suddenly ended when Lynn fled the Picton farm, having seen something terrible and running for her life. The man told police that his sister, Lynn, had informed him that Robert had brought a woman from the low track to a party he was having. The woman had had her nails painted a beautiful color by Lynn's recollection. The sex worker and Robert went to his room to have sex, with Lynn in the living room doing drugs until she passed out for the evening. A while later, Lynn woke up to a loud noise, and went to investigate what could have caused it. From the mobile home that she lived in with Robert, she could see the lights in the slaughterhouse on. Lynn put on boots and trudged out to the slaughterhouse to see what exactly was going on, thinking perhaps a friend of Robert's was up to no good, or someone was looking for scrap metal to loot. Lynn opened the door, not exactly knowing what to expect. As the door creaked open, she found her view was obscured, by toes with pretty nail polish. In front of her hung the woman who had spent the night with Robert, She'd been sliced open like a pig, and Robert was busy stripping her thigh of flesh. Lynn, who let out a soul-wrenching scream, alerted Robert that she had seen the terrible things he was doing in his slaughterhouse. Now, for whatever reason, and this one might be just one of those truths we never know, Robert let Lynn go, perhaps trusting she wouldn't say anything due to her close ties to the Hells Angels. And of course, that in part proved to be true because Lynn, in fact, didn't go to the cops. But unfortunately, all this information was hearsay and completely unreliable as far as the law was concerned. In the year 2000, Inspector Kim Rossmo was developing a technique called geographic profiling to search through previously unsolved cases to see if there was a pattern that could identify serial predators of one sort or another. Inspector Rossmo, using this technique identifying that there was a serial killer stalking the streets of the low track. But, unfortunately, Rossmo's theory was largely disregarded. The old boys knew better than Kim. There was no serial killer on the loose. And of course, Kim Rossmo was demoted for not falling in line, as the public stance of the VPD was that there was no serial killer active in Vancouver, and Kim had stood strong and insisted there was. But regardless of whether or not they believed there was a predator on the downtown east side, the families and loved ones of the missing women were becoming more and more frustrated and anxious for an investigation to take place. It was that public pressure which led the RCMP and Vancouver Police Department to start the Missing Women's Task Force. And it's a good thing they did. No sooner had the tip line opened than it was being drenched in calls, and more than a healthy few of those calls mentioned Robert Pickton and the creepy tucked away farm in Port Coquitlam. But for another year, police did absolutely nothing. Okay, let's recap to this point in 2002. Wendy Eistetter had been attacked, partially emboweled, and given statement to police in 1997. Bill Hiscox had called police, in 1998, and again in 1999. Kim Rosmo had informed the VPD that there was possibly an active serial killer on the loose, and in 2001, when the tip line was opened, it was flooded with calls regarding Robert Picton. Five years. This could have been concluded five years earlier. Make what judgments you will on that timeline. I'll reserve my own for the time being. Finally, on February 6th, 2002, the VPD executed a search warrant for Robert's trailer, searching for illegal weapons on an unrelated tip from a truck driver who had been making deliveries to the farm. The trailer was almost more disgusting and filthy than the pig pen just outside, but it was what they found amongst the filth and debris that concerned police. There, amongst the trash, was an asthma inhaler prescribed to a Serena Abbotsway, a 29-year-old woman missing since August 2001. Having found the inhaler, police were able to request a second search warrant to search for the belongings or any evidence of other missing women. Police found shoes, jewelry, clothes and ID belonging to several women, in fact, and this led to a full search of the property, which was 40 acres in size. If they had found all of that in the trailer, what else must be lurking about? Investigators found buckets, containing human skulls sliced in half with a bandsaw, as well as the collected hands and feet of several women. There were plastic garbage bags filled with other remains as well and entrails. But what disgusts me to the core is the meat investigators found. It was human meat. But it had been cut into pieces and stored in freezers alongside ground pork and other meats. On February 22, 2002, Robert Picton was arrested and charged with two counts of first degree murder. The search of the Picton farm took nearly two years. Investigators took over 200,000 DNA samples, finding the DNA of 33 separate women. Human DNA was also found amongst meat that had been packaged with ground pork found in the freezer, seemingly cutting the pork meat with human meat. And human tissue was all over the meat grinder as well. Because of this, health authorities had to issue a public warning about meat that had come from the farm, meat that had been served at Piggy's Palace and given to neighbors and butchers. Human DNA was also found in the barrels that transported fats to the rendering plant, which means that human remains potentially made their way into soap or cosmetic products. In jail, Robert Picton revealed to an undercover cop posing as his cellmate that he had been attempting to go for the Big 5-0 implying he landed somewhere around 49, just short of his goal. In total, Robert was charged with the murder of 27 women, but due to the sheer volume of evidence and victims, they'd need to split the trial into parts. But on December 7th, 2007, Robert was found guilty of all counts. Well, at least the first six counts of murder that they were trying him with. The jury believed Robert was too slow to have such foresight, and deemed that he had not planned the murders ahead of time. Therefore, they would only be second-degree murder, as opposed to first-degree, which would have allowed much harsher sentencing. Because of those murders being second-degree, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years, which was the harshest sentence allowed under Canadian law. Now, it was assumed that Robert would go to trial again for the other 20 murders, but in 2010, Prosecutors announced that it wouldn't be the case. There was no point. Because it wouldn't change where Robert Picton would spend the rest of his life. In jail. Which, to the families of those missing, felt like one final insult. One final disregard for their daughters. Whose society had failed. So, Creeps.
0: That brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember Creeps, Take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget
1: to lock the doors.